you know, space is more accessible now than it ever has been before. And so if, you know, ideas shouldn't just remain ideas, you know, we should be able to convert those ideas um, to put stuff on orbit and, and to generate, you know, human changing conditions and, and to make life better on earth. Hi, I'm Hilary Bolton, and this is the Digital Culture Ideas YouTube show and podcast. Today, I speak to Lee Foster, who is the Space Systems Program Manager at Rocket Lab. So we have a good chat about Rocket Lab and the space industry and what's going on there. And then we also touch on space cybersecurity issues. I hope you enjoy the episode. So Lee, how are you? Good, thank you. Yep, I'm really good. We've uh, had three months in lockdown here in Auckland and um, my kids are back to school today. So some relative nice. peace and quiet. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Um, but, you know, it's been it's actually been kind of cool too because we've been able to connect a lot more and you spend a lot more time focused on them rather than focused on rockets and, and uh, spacecraft. So um, it's, been, it's been a great experience, but one that I'm happy to, <laughs> to sort of get towards the end of. Yeah, no, fair enough. And I think a lot of people kind of looking at the, the, you know, the gratitude side of things in terms of the, the positives from the experience, you know, because you've got to highlight those and recognise those. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, Lee, we, we know each other. So spoiler alert for everyone here. We know each yeah. other because we worked in the Royal New Zealand Air Force together when I was yeah. an organisational psychologist. Um, but I think it'd be really uh, good for the audience as well, just if you could kind of tell us a bit about yourself and your background, sure. just to provide some context. Sure, yep. Um, so uh, I joined the Air Force at 18 and um, straight out of school as a navigator. So a navigator is something that's not on a commercial airliner because it's done by a computer these days. But... <clears throat> Um, a navigator is kind of a mission commander or, or manages a mission on a military aircraft. And so I was on uh, the C-130, the Hercules, uh, from about 2002 by the time I finished my training and, um, and spent on and off sort of 15 years back and forth on the Hercules as an instructor and then overseas for some tours um, in Australia, both uh, as, as an instructor and then um, again um, for some, some post-grad study. And... Um, and I guess I kind of contributed back that way, back into the Air Force and, and um, recently left actually after 21 years. Um, lots of uh, great experiences as, as you probably will profess to in the mm. Air Force and, and certainly some, some great building um, moments in your, in your kind of your early, early 20s and, and throughout. But um, look, I think for me, I, I went over to the US and I studied a master's degree and um, and I think like most organizations, when you get to sort of mid-level management, it's much of a muchness. So, you know, a lot of the military demands in terms of having to move all the time and, and you know, I'd done sort of five moves in seven years with young kids. And, you know, I think um, I wanted to try something different. And my master's in the States was focused on around space and space strategy. Um, and and so it was kind of a natural transition to go um, to a space company, um, which, is, which is Rocket Lab. Um, I think with the military, one of the great things it does have is that community. And while mm. when you leave, you miss it, you also never lose it. Yeah, um, sure. I mean, and that's kind of why we're doing this interview, right? I sort of, yep. you know, reconnect with you online. I was like, come on and talk about this rocket lab and yeah. space stuff. Because, yeah. so that's so interesting. So, so maybe if we talk about that a bit then. So tell us, how did you get your role at, at Rocket Lab? Like, how well, did that work? Yes, yeah, so I, was, I was pretty fortunate, actually. Um, I had an opportunity um, with the Air Force um, 
to be promoted into the director of space role. And that was really about, um, yeah, how does uh, the New Zealand Defence Force manage um, the access and data from space to, mm. I guess, progress the New Zealand national security initiatives? And, you know, we know that space is kind of ubiquitous and, and, and you can do a lot of stuff from space and arguably um, the modus operandi of defence has been, you know, planes, tanks and, and ships and and there's another domain there, um, and kind of two domains actually, if, if you think about what your domain is in the cyber realm, mm. you know, an information domain, and then of course the space as well, which, which sits neatly above above air, right? So kind of aerospace. Um, and, so, and so the Air Force was uh, given the, I guess, the control of the space domain from a New Zealand defence perspective. And and um, given that I'd just studied a master's and focused on space, that was where I naturally fell. Um, so I got a secondment to Rocket Lab for six months um, at the start of last year, so 2020. And um, and it was great. And, and I really I really enjoyed the sort of the culture and the, the fast moving uh, pace of things. And then I actually went and led the uh, Auckland COVID response uh, for six months at the end of last year. Right. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. And that was that was uh, it was pretty, pretty full on. Right. We we're working sort of 100 hour weeks and, and trying to manage New Zealand through this crisis that was COVID. Um, but I think we, you know, we did a really good job and, and we sort of implemented MIQ at the time. And um, and I think, you know, at the time we did great. It has, it's a bit of a shame that it hasn't moved on too far since then. But, um, you know, we, we put in a system that worked, which is great. But um, I started to look elsewhere outside defence throughout that experience. And, um, and not, not because I didn't enjoy that experience, because it was great, again, for, for some resilience building, but um, more because I wanted to sort of take command of my own, career a little bit more um sure and so yeah. I, so I and obviously I had some um some touch points in Rocket Lab and so I continued to kind of look at what what those were who those people were and what roles were coming up and there was a role that um sort of captured my attention a little bit and I guess the rest is history so they say and so what's the bit about the role that you like the most um I mean it's super exciting and fast moving, right? I mean, and, and, you know, the space industry is one that is, you know, people talk about the trillion dollar economy and, um, and it's highly technical as well. So coming from aviation, um, which is, which is fairly technical, um, it's kind of a, a nice bridge to, to aerospace and, and then into space. Um, but I think, you know, working for Rocket Lab as a Kiwi company and one that has got a massive vision, right? Um, and to be to be a, a complete end-to-end space company, it's it's kind of exhilarating, and um, yeah. and the work is really rewarding because you see your, the results, right? When a rocket launches to space or you have a spacecraft on orbit, it's really mm. rewarding, and, and then to see the results of that, like, I right? made so, it happen. I yeah, yeah. It well, happen. I contributed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, and there's and and that's part of it as well, right? There's there's a camaraderie there, which you, know, you touched on at the start with the Air Force, but there's a camaraderie. When you're focused towards a common goal like that as well you know and, and your eyes are staying on the prize and so that's really cool it's a collaborative environment um um i'm not gonna lie we work bloody hard like there's there's you know yeah. people work really hard and um and and we push hard to to get the results and you know that's why rocket lab is so successful um now at doing what it does but um so i guess you know you can probably come back to sort of three things it's it's the work itself so so how rewarding that is um it's the people 
that like most jobs right you've got to really enjoy the, the people you work with and um and those that work for you and that those that you work for um and, and i guess is the you know it's the prize at the end that that is that is the pretty cool thing absolutely so just for the audience just want to clarify a term that you used which was end-to-end space yeah. program yeah space company yeah so um space company yeah yeah what, do you, yeah. what does that mean so you know some some companies are targeting just that being a launch provider right so they're just being the bus to space and if you think about yep. you know um you know a, a launch vehicle really it is just the transport mechanism to get um the goods from where they are on earth you know terrestrial goods up into yep. up into space and so that's just the space transport service or, or a launch service um but you know when you're when you're talking about um building that platform there's a bunch of stuff that goes into that that you get from a lot of external suppliers and the same thing for for the satellite industry and so what rocket lab um, does that is unlike any other space company is that um, we build the rocket so the, the the transport we have the pressure we can build the precious cargo so so the satellite um, itself um, we can manage the on-orbit operations. So once something gets into orbit, you have to manage that and operate it, kind of like you know flying the satellite, if you were to think of an aircraft. Yep. Um, and then, of course, we can manage the ground communication side of things as well through our through our, our subcontracts. So um, you know we we can essentially have someone turn up with a payload, so a sensor of some sort. Um, you know, it might be a retransmitter for a TV aerial, or it might be a, um, a a sensor that can look at um, methane emissions on Earth, and they could come to us, and we could integrate that onto one of our satellites, which is, and our satellite will be built up, making it with with a bunch of our components that we that we make in house, um, and then we can launch that satellite, and we can operate that satellite, and provide the the user with the data at the end. So, so really, you turn up with a payload, and in nine months' time, you we can have data coming off that off that payload. That's really cool. Um, one of the things when I was reading about Rocket Lab is they um, might have been in your kind of mission or slogan, but it's about getting people's ideas to space. Yeah. I really liked that. And um, and in terms of you talked about, you know, they can turn up with a payload. And uh, so who does they tend to be? Um, well, I, I guess, of people? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's government or commercial, right? And so I guess there's two two sides of of what is what is kind of space and, and one side is the commercial world um and that might be um commercial you know uh eo or electro optic sensors or cameras or a university or yep oh so there's yep. i guess that's the other side is is um so there's so there's the civil government yep. which is kind of um you know agencies you know for example mm-hmm. the ministry of business innovation and employment or mpi or um, customs or whoever it might be. So there's the civil side of government, there's the commercial, yep. and then there's defence. And so, right, okay, yeah, they're kind of the main, um, the main customer base, I guess. And for us, about fifty percent of our customers are commercial, fifty percent government. And of that fifty percent government, um, that's a that's made up of either civil or sort of national security. Cool. So, yeah. It just um it just occurred to me when you're talking about um some of your background actually and how you got into this role and why I think you're probably perfect for it is with that I've I've found with military people in their background that they're very used to dealing in impossible situations or not sure exactly what the plan 
would be, but hey, let's get people together and think about it and come up with a plan. And if mm. you think about your military career and then what you did with COVID as well, which is again, is another like never happened before situation working through that. And then now what you're doing with Rocket Lab in terms of, you know, the, the future of aerospace and, you know, probably putting things into space that have not, never gone there before. That actually completely rings true for me in terms of why someone like you, I think would be really good at, you know, at what you do. So yeah, sorry, that was well, just like a bit of yeah. a segue. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I guess it's kind of working in the gray space a little bit more, yeah. right? Like, and I think when you're talking about, um, you know, I've done lots of, um, lots of operations in the Middle East over the years, hmm. um, you know, supporting New Zealand and allied troops and, um, you know, Afghanistan all the way back from sort of 2003 and then, you know, more recently the fight against ISIS um, in Iraq. And um, you do often work in that grey space, right? We, we are not sure on how things are going, but you can prepare and you can plan, right? And, um, you know, you, you get lucky sometimes and, um, but, you know, often people say that that opportunity and preparation come together to create luck. And mm. I guess... I guess that's kind of the mindset is that if you if we prepare and plan really well and um, and we create opportunities for ourselves as a company, then then you know we'll get lucky with some big contracts and and um, and ultimately those contracts are to, to deliver something special for Earth, right? Um, yes. And and that's whether it's ideas from academia um, or it's or it's testing grounds for you know future mega constellations. Or, um, or whether it's you know getting a getting an idea of some nineteen year old young student that's got a great idea. Um, you know, previously prior to some of these um, prior to some of these launch companies like Rocket Lab, you know, those ideas would be very difficult to get into orbit, right? Just because the cost was just it was insurmountable for for universities to fund that. Now the cost of launch is coming right down because you've got you know, commercial industry getting involved and, and driving those costs down, then, you know, that's a that's exponential in terms of what you can gain um, from space. And, and so I think, you know, people say, but, but what are you going to gain from space? And if you think about, you know, you've got a plot of land and you want to farm that more successfully and you could have a, a camera on orbit that tells you, you know, three days before it's visually available to see that one of your crops is dying or, or that it's been infected by something, you can treat that earlier you can plant via GPS, you know, um, you can plant far more accurately and maximize the utility of that land for farming to, you know, to create, you know, if, you, if you're in the back blocks of Africa and you've got minimal land that is actually farmable and you'd want to maximize the use of that. And so if space can help you do that, then then that's, you know, that's great for humanity. And and those are the sort of ideas that, um, that are being explored and, and um, being put on orbit now to, to try and you know cope with some of some of Earth's problems that we've got, Absolutely. including climate change, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you mentioned mega constellation. Can I ask you what yeah. that is? So mega constellation, yep. Any constellation, I guess, is is more than one satellite. Um, and so the way that satellites operate, um, you know, they don't sit over one space unless they're in geosynchronous orbit, which is which is a long way out from Earth, and this is about this is kind of a space one hundred and one right now. But um, you've got <laughs> you've got bands, right? You've got a low Earth orbit, which is somewhere between one hundred and fifty to two thousand kilometers from Earth, and then yep. you've got um, sort of a medium Earth orbit, which is where the GPS or the the other um, global navigation systems sit, and they sit in about a twelve hour orbit. So so 
every 12 hours they come back around. And then you've got um, geosynchronous orbit, which is a precise point um, at 36,000 kilometers, where essentially as the Earth rotates, they rotate at the same rate. And so they effectively stay over over the top of uh, the one position. Mm. And that's, that's generally communication satellites, weather satellites, you know, TV satellites. They normally stay over one place. But, you know, where we're really targeting is this low Earth orbit, which, you know, they're moving, they, they rotate around the Earth effectively every 90 minutes. Um, so, you know, they're going at eight kilometres a second, which is, and you have to have that amount of forward speed to not be pulled back into Earth's atmosphere. So right, essentially, yeah. it's, it's like it's like you go to throw a ball as fast as you can. So it's constantly falling around the Earth. So it's not flying as such. It's constantly falling towards Earth, and that's what's keeping it spinning at that rate. Um, and so as it's coming around every every ninety minutes, like you, you're not going to have lots of coverage. So if you want sort of global coverage, you've either got to have lots of satellites, you know, that are all be all be right up in geosynchronous orbit, but you know, to put a satellite into geosynchronous orbit is to build it and for it to last. It's kind of in the billion dollars, and that's yeah. that's not making space accessible, right? Who's got a billion dollars to throw at a at a research and development satellite? Um, and so, low Earth orbit um, is kind of what's been, um, I guess, commercialized nowadays. And and so, the idea is rather than have like five geosynchronous satellites at a billion dollars a pop, you have that, that, that you want to last for 15 years. And so in, in 12 years' time, we'll have, you know, technology that's 12 years old, which is, you know, mm. that's not that's not the way we want to be heading because in 12 years, you know, that's six cycles of Moore's law. Um, and that's not great from a security point of view either because no, you know, exactly. might not be able to keep it updated as you like. That's right. And so lower thought mega constellations, back to your initial question, um, that's kind of in the thousands of satellites that are, that are kind of giving a global coverage. So something like SpaceX's Starlink, um, Amazon's got a mega constellation on the books um, yeah. called Cooper, um, and the Chinese have, have planned some. And basically all these satellites will give global coverage. And something like 5G internet from, from space like Starlink um, or Amazon's Cooper project um, would provide, you know, again, provide humanity with something special. You're in the, you know, you're in a, you've got a house even in New Zealand in the Uruweta Mountains and you can't get any, there's no, there's no fiber internet there, right? So, so what do you do? Well, you know, if we want to be able to progress some of this stuff, you, you need to be looking at, at a little bit higher up in that space and that's mega constellation. So it's kind of the way that the world's headed. And, um, and our recent announcement of the, our neutron launch vehicle, which is a, a medium lift launch vehicle in the eight, you know, eight ton to Leo range, is really targeted around um, around these mega constellations and ensuring Leo that, range. Um, sorry, in the low Earth orbit range. So okay, yeah. to get stuff into low Earth orbit, um, and you have at the moment the electron vehicle takes around about three hundred and thirty kilos worth of payload. Um, and the neutron launch vehicle will be more in the vicinity of eight ton. So you can imagine wow. what you can fit on. Like if you've got a hundred and fifty kilo satellite, then that's quite a few of them that you can uh, that you can fit in an eight ton launch vehicle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you started to mention a, a few different companies, and obviously, I guess there is that kind of space race thing. But um, I'm curious what collaboration or interaction happens across different kind of space companies. And the one that springs to mind is like NASA and things like that. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, NASA is a civil government agency. And so, you know, what NASA previously used to do, I guess, is, is fund stuff internally um, and fund it 
through their own rockets, right? The Saturn V was a, a US government, a NASA rocket that, that took um, astronauts to the moon. And, and a lot of their programs were internally funded with, and what we've seen more recently is, you know, we've won a bunch of NASA contracts. Um, I think our launch number four was a, a NASA contract and that really sort of cemented us as a launch company. Um, you know, we're currently um, planning to, to launch a NASA payload to the moon into a into a uh, orbit around the moon uh, and at the end of sort of quarter one next year um, and that's a NASA contract um, for them to really get some data on this particular orbit that is the start of their Artemis program so the return of of um, men and and the first woman on the moon right. will return in what they've announced is 2025 and it's a NASA initiative that's backed by the US government of course um, and part of that is to collect some data around um, what does this particular orbit look like right if they were to put a, a, a small space station around the moon then um, how would they use this this um, orbit to give them the data they need and so the first step of that is a is an R&D satellite that you put in to collect that data so you don't just go rushing to making a decision. And um, and so our job is to get that thing, you know, launch it to space and then do a series of maneuvers um, to get it uh, to the moon, basically. That's cool. Um, super Artemis. exciting. Yep. That, um, is that the Greek, uh, do you know the Greek mythology around that? I can't, I'm trying to think nah. back to my classics days. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll look that up later. I think, that sounds um, cool. Yeah, there was a twin brother, right? I think Artemis oh. had a twin brother. Yes, yeah, something around that. A, a, a quick Google will tell me, but um, but yeah, the um, <laughs> but it's the it's, it's the Artemis program, which um, which is you know it's a huge push from uh, the US government, bipartisan, by the way, which is which is always good. Um, mm. So Trump and Biden are both really supportive of NASA, and, and they've been getting more funding of late um, than than ever before. There's a, there is a, obviously a a security piece there around um, this the new space race, right, is what they're calling it, the new space race, yeah. which was previously, you know, back in the 60s, it was it was all around Russia and, and the US and the prestige and who can get to the moon first. And, and now it's, there's a couple of other parties that are that are in this this new space race. Yeah. So it would be quite good um, to perhaps talk about that now. So because when we see the countdown of launches and it's all really impressive and you know I think people find it really inspiring but and maybe they might thinking that's you know hopefully it's not going to crash but they're probably not thinking about some of the cyber pieces mm. around that you know um so what can you tell me about some of the the cyber thinking that that goes into a launch at Rocket Lab yeah so I, I guess from a Rocket Lab perspective and for pure launch um, you've almost got uh, visual contact you know, or line of sight contact with your rocket most of the time, especially in the early stages of launch. And so, um, and, you know, it's kind of nice being down in, in little old New Zealand, right? We're ge geographically pretty remote. And um, and so actually our launch site um, in, in Mahia off, on the east coast of the North Island there um, provides us a great avenue to launch to a bunch of... Um, a bunch of, I guess, regions in space, right? Um, and and that's super cool because there's not a lot of other launch sites. In fact, there's no other private launch sites that can, can cope with the launch cadence that we've been um, enabled to launch um, from the New Zealand government. And Is New and, Zealand special in some way as a launch site? 
Well, I guess it is. But when you look at like sort of Cape Canaveral or or Los Angeles, there's a lot of air traffic and a lot of ship traffic. And sure. And and so when they do a launch, and, and I and I believe that they're only allowed to really launch once a month, and that's because the amount of um, air traffic that they have to divert along that corridor that you're launching from. You know, if you're launching from here. Um, you have to block off a corridor and you have to make sure that's clear of ships and in case that launch vehicle comes down and, and there's a, a bunch of safety and range safety considerations to take into account. And so what is really cool with New Zealand that really on off the East Coast, there's not a lot of stuff. Um, yeah. And and so it's we can launch quite frequently without much disruption and we don't have to disturb a whole bunch of air routes. And, you know, there's it's millions of dollars every time they launch with the amount of air traffic that they have to manoeuvre around or, or delay or or uh, not allow to go through a corridor that the launch vehicle is going through. And so New Zealand is kind of special is that is that we can access a huge amount um, of inclination. So which means, you know, if you're launching to the same inclination, the latitude that, um, sorry, it's getting pretty technical. If you're launching <laughs> to the, you can just, you can launch to a whole bunch of um, of inclinations around Earth that you otherwise can't from lots of other launch sites. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yes, it is special. And, um, you know, Peter Beck's vision there to, to create something that um, we could launch often into a large um, amount of, of regions into space was, was just as important as obviously a launch vehicle and, and how we set up business because it enables us um, to collect more customers, basically. You know, more people that want to go to different orbits can come and, and they know that, that we can service a large amount of them. And in relatively, you don't have to wait 6, 12, 18, 24, 36 months to get a launch, right? Like it can happen quite quickly. And the New Zealand government, um, through the, the New Zealand Space Agency, which is a part of NBIE, um, mm-hmm. have been really forward-leaning in terms of um, the way that they've facilitated the legal framework around launch and um, enabling us to to launch frequently. Oh, good. Um, and coming back to some of those cyber considerations. Yes, if, sorry. Um, yep. if I'm thinking about, you know, I, you know, like you mentioned data before. Obviously, that's a really important part of the, the mission, which you want to keep secure and protect mm-hmm. and, um, you know, make sure is looked after. What what other kind of considerations or thoughts do you have on that? Yeah, it's a, so, so all of these communications are done in the RF spectrum, right, in the radio frequency spectrum. And the radio frequency spectrum is fairly limited um, in terms of, you know, you have to have a size of an aerial and you have to have a size of a transmitter. And so you can't go too low because you need a huge aerial and you can't put a huge aerial in space because it's too costly. So there's a pretty narrow band, excuse the pun, um, of of um, of bandwidth that you can use. And so, you know, as we talk about these mega constellations, these, these bands will get heavily congested. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you can only talk to a satellite or, or a spacecraft when, when you can, you know, be in, in line of sight communications with it. And so if you think about it spinning at, at 90 minutes, it's going around the globe, you've only got a very narrow window if you've got an aerial on the ground that it's going to pass over. And so if you want right. to give give data to the satellite or pull data from a satellite, you can only really do it when you're in contact with it. And so you can do a couple of things, right? You can, you can have more ground stations around the world, but of course, if you've got more ground stations, you kind of have to be friends with people if you want to put your ground stations in their country. Um, or you can have like a big memory and you can store a lot of data on their satellite 
and then transmit that data down incrementally when you go over the over the the aerial. Um, but of course, you know, like we talked about, fifteen year old technology is not going to be able to store much data. I mean, think about mm. you know, you know, those computers fifteen years ago couldn't do much at all, right? And and if you were refreshing those satellites every sort of three or four years, that have much more data storage um, and ability to transmit. And so. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a risk when you're transmitting in the RF spectrum is that you kind of blast a signal to your satellite, right? And, and it collects the signal on the way past. But if anything else is in that region, it's gonna collect the same command that you give it. Um, and, and conversely, the same thing down, right? When your satellite transmits down, it's gonna, it's gonna have the same information. And if someone's nearby listening, you know, then mm. they're gonna get the same information. And so you can encrypt that data. And I'm probably talking more from my, my former life in, in defense, but yeah, yeah. You, can you can encrypt data. And so, um, and I, you know, I, I think it's akin to sort of if you're leaning out the window of your, your two-story house and you're going to tell your husband, hey, this is where I've left the key, you're probably not going to tell them if there's a guy standing there with a balaclava on, right? But, but you could, but you might have pre-organized you know, to encrypt that message. And that might say something like, you know, um, the key is where we always leave it, right? And then, yeah. it, you know, there's leaves a sense of sort of encryption into that data. And so that's one way you can encrypt stuff. The, the problem with encryption nowadays is that encryption from three, four, five years ago um, can be intercepted and stored. And then with quantum computing, they can decrypt that message. And so again, it's kind of, this is cat and mouse theory around yeah. protection of cyber and then breaking that, and you would see that in your role as well, right? Like, how do you protect against today's threat, but tomorrow there's a new threat, and so you've got to do that, and it's this cat and mouse game, this countermeasures, and then counter counter countermeasures, and then, you know, that, that goes on and on. And so one of the things nowadays that people are looking at is optical communications, and so that's that's basically a laser, and, and it's way quicker in the light spectrum, as we know from, like, the speed of light versus the speed of sound, Mm -hmm. we know that the speed of light is much faster. And so if you've got an optical, um, an opt a way of transmitting data through an optical means, then it's much, much quicker. And um, you can put a lot more data on it and it's far more accurate. And so there's a, there's a move, I think, across um, the industry um, to go towards optical communications for cyber protection. Um, and part of that, um, you know, you, you can have satellites talking to each other on orbit by optical communications. And that's mm -hmm. that's a little bit easier because you've got no atmosphere to contend with. When you're transmitting to a spacecraft or from a spacecraft through Earth's atmosphere, where you've got cloud and rain and um, water and refraction and atmosphere, then um, then the then the optical, you know, the optical laser is not going to be as accurate and could get distorted a bit. So again, it's one of those problems that that, you know, the guys that that are highly technical working on and uh, we <laughs> certainly not me, but, um, but we, you know, we're looking at, at what are ways in which um, we can move forward and sort of um, prevent, I guess, the congestion uh, impacting our operations. Um, and when I say, when I say our operation, I don't mean necessarily rocket lab. I mean, the space industry as a whole. Sure. Um, but, you know, when I come back to you said, how, how do we collaborate? And so, you know, NASA is one way in which we can collaborate, but, there is um, other programs in which there might be, um, you know, multiple parties involved. And so one of one of the programs that I'm currently working on is a, is a program called MethaneSat, and that's a, a methane emissions detecting satellite. 
And you know, the, the satellite bus, so that the vehicle is built by one aerospace company, which is uh, mm-hmm. Blue Canyon Technologies. The sensor, so that the, the payload, the thing that's sensing the methane emissions is built by another satellite manufacturer. We're doing the mission operations. So once it gets into orbit, we manage the mission and it's being launched on a different satellite provider, a, a space lift provider. So, you know, we, if there's a, yeah, so it can get pretty complex. And, and you know, as well as I do, the more people that have got their fingers in the pie, the more complex it becomes. But, um, but that's the way, you know, you kind of got to, you, you got to do what you got to do. And, and it's actually been really insightful working with some of these other companies to see, you know, their strengths and their weaknesses at the same time. And is that a key, like your, your role is obviously program management and is that yep. kind of the key things that you're doing all the time is trying to line up the different projects that you might be working yeah. with the different stakeholders? Yes, yeah. I mean, stakeholder engagement is one part of, of program management, I guess. And so that, that is part of it, but it's driving the internal development schedules as well, making okay. sure we're hitting milestones, um, you know, understanding risk and communicating, communicating what those risks and issues are um, up and down the chain and, and making sure that we can sort of combat those in the in the right time frame, um, without throwing the baby out into bathwater, and um, you know it's just yeah yeah. There's lots of technical challenges that we've got to work through, um, and you know if you want to keep the cost down, which you know that's one of our our mandates is is to really keep, you know make the make space accessible. And if mm. you want to keep the cost down, then you know there's there's going to be some risks that you've got to take. And um, fortunately, those risks to date have been really well thought out and accepted, but. Um, it's about, I guess, understanding the risks and understanding how great they are. What's the likelihood of them actually coming to fruition? You know, what's the impact of those risks if they do come to fruition? And, this is uh, my job every day. Yeah, <laughs> like, so I completely yeah. understand what yeah, you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. And I think coming from aviation, it's 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 quite simple to do risk because, you know, when you're, when you're flying in combat, um, you, you have to understand the risks, right? And you've, people's life, like, you're literally, your life is at risk. So, um You've really got to do risk properly, like understand what that risk is and how do we mitigate that to as low as reasonably practicable. And you, you can never reduce it to zero, but but you but you certainly want to when you I don't want to be knocking on someone's door to say, Hey, sorry, we got this risk wrong and, and your your son or daughter's no longer here. That's you know, you can't play that game. So so coming no. from aviation, risk is is quite a uh, not a simple concept, but one we we take into account in an everyday sort of everyday role, and um, and so you know coming into the space industry, where at the moment Rocket Lab is not launching humans to space, um, mm. and note that that I say at the moment, but um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we, so so it's not the same outcome, I guess, the same you know catastrophic outcome if some of those risks do come to fruition. So it's really about just managing them. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Lee, this has just been so fascinating. And you're actually really, really darn good at explaining some of these really <laughs> terms. So thank it's you. I, it's because I'm a simple guy myself, all right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so what are you looking forward to? What's kind of coming up for you? Um, I think, you know, the, the moon missions, is it's a pretty cool mission. And mm. I think, you know, it's um, that's kind of multi-generational when you think about you know, when, when astronauts went to the moon in the 60s and the early 70s, and they hadn't been back since. So to be a part of something, you know, that has the potential for sort of big things, you know, so you're the first step in returning humans to the moon, which is the first step in potentially humans going interplanetary, which is yeah. potentially the first step in going, you know, 
you know, multi-planetary and then, and then going, you know, um, interstellar. Like if you think 500 years away, what are we doing? So like, so to be part of something wow. like that on behalf of NASA, which is, which is, a, you know, it's a huge credit to, again, to, to Peter Beck and Sean O'Donnell, um, they built a great company that is, is going after some really complex stuff and nailing it. Right. So, so that's super exciting to, to be involved in that moon mission. Um, but you know, there's other ones that are that are coming up that are really cool as well. I mean, the neutron launch vehicle. You know, when that first launches, it's going to be incredible. It's going to be fully reusable. Um, so that's going to launch and then come back down, and, and we're going to reuse that rocket, which oh, wow. again, which is only really SpaceX does that at the moment. Um, you know, that's going to be really cool. I think you know we've won a program um, to send two spacecraft to Mars uh, called Escapade, and we've won that program. That's a it's a, a collaboration. Um, and so, you know, there's some super interesting stuff that um, that has a real science outcome. Um, we're sending a probe to Venus to look for, uh, for phosphine in, in Venus's atmosphere, which is a sign of life. And so, you know, we're doing some really cool science missions. Um, and, you know, being able to be part of that stuff that is potentially, you know, world leading, but also like, like I say, multi-generational in terms of the potential impact. And being part of that cycle is, is pretty special. Absolutely. It's like game-changing yeah. for humankind, right? Yeah. So that's yep. real cool. Yeah, yeah it's and, really cool. And any final words, Lee, before we say goodbye? Um, I guess, um, you know, the, the space industry is one that, is, um, that is, is really cool. And I guess people shouldn't be scared off by um, the, the technical side of things. Because like any role, right, that you learn stuff. And... Um, and you know, so Rocket Lab's full of um, full of various cultures and ethnicities and and people from lots of different countries because we don't necessarily have the expertise in New Zealand right now. But but I hope that that would change over time. And you know, again, you know, Rocket Lab's if if we weren't in New Zealand, then arguably some of the education system wouldn't be geared around creating space professionals and. Um, mm. You know, so I'd say to people, if they're interested in it, then then to, to get amongst it, right? Like you, you can study aerospace engineering now. There's now at University of Auckland, there's a master's of aerospace engineering, and and the methane set um, contract that we've got to do mission operations, we're going to hand over mission operations to the University of Auckland. So you're going to have undergrad students flying satellites, right? Wow. And so yeah, so it's super cool. Like, and that's a great investment by the New Zealand government to to invest in in um, Auckland University to run that program long term. But, you know, so, so I'd encourage people to get involved in, in STEM. And um, and if they're interested in it, then don't be afraid, right? Like I was never a space geek as a kid. Um, I probably couldn't have named the planets before I not, – not in order anyway. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, I think it was – for me, it was just a natural curiosity um, that, that sort of pushed me in that direction. And then once you get a taste of it, it's it's super exciting and, and, and you kind of want a little bit more and um, – and want a little bit more after that. And so um, you don't have to be the smartest guy in the room. Um, you know, you don't have to be the most amazing technically, but but um, interest, passion and enthusiasm goes a long way. And um, and I think, you know, with that enthusiasm and passion, there's lots of people that, that want to try stuff in, in, in space. And so again, you know, space is more accessible now than it ever has been before. And so if, you know, ideas shouldn't just remain ideas. You know, we should be able to convert those ideas um, to put stuff on orbit and and to generate, you know, human changing 
conditions and and to make life better on earth and that's the that's really the aim right is like how do we maximize our time on earth and make it as as great as we can and if, and if space can help do that then then we should be using it absolutely yeah oh thanks so much for coming on the show lee yep thanks for having me really appreciate it it's, it's good to be able to share my ideas and it's great to catch up with you again hillary <laughs>